us out to breakfast What's before lunch? It's Austin, Texas It's Weird Brunch My mom always used to say she did charity work and what she was doing was helping organize a uh, mansion redecoration in order to benefit youth symphony orchestra programs. Mm-hmm. Which is sweet and necessary and good for our culture and good for our children. But I just felt like you have to describe that as an arts program, not a charity. Yeah. <laughs> charity yeah. helps. Helps like homeless people. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. It's not kids playing symphony. That's yeah. that's funny. It's a bittersweet symphony, you know? Oh, yeah. God. Dad's here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad Dad could make it. Mm-hmm. No, he's usually out getting smokes. Mm-hmm. Permanently. Mm-hmm. Has been since that song came out. Is, that, is there a song about that? About- about bittersweet symphony? Carly Rae Jepsen has a song called I'm Just Going to the Store. Oh, boy. It goes, I'm just going to the store, to the store. You might not see me anymore, anymore. So basically, that's about dads, I think. Yeah. I love it when uh, people make like really upbeat songs about really fucked up shit. It's it like is, my favorite thing. Yeah, it is super upbeat. It's like one of her... Carly Rae Jepsen is pretty known for her B-sides, and that that was a B-side to emotion, I believe. Anyways, sorry for all the CRJ talk. I know we're more of a Britney family here, but <laughs> we are. Did you see that Jamie Lynn? Jamie Lynn, yes. Mm. I, wonder, I, wonder, I wonder, I mean, if it were me. I mean, I, I don't know her relationship with her sister, but I would trust Jamie Lynn over actual Jamie. If nothing else, you know you can fight her. They had to have fought as children. I mean, Brittany, sisters do. Brittany is like a good 10 years at least older than her, though. Oh, yeah. Isn't she possibly her daughter? <laughs> what? No. Uh, she would have had to be like eight or nine. Which I mean, the same uh, rumors going around about like Solange too. It's no like any shit. any younger yeah. sister who's also famous. It's like mm, it's probably their daughter, or they just had two children. What a wild concept! No, that's impossible. Who would do that twice? Well, Karina, <laughs> <laughs> you tell us. Mm, it was an accident. Which one? <laughs> I don't know. Flip a coin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, man. I love a good accident joke. It doesn't stay with people at all for the rest of their lives when they hear it later. Mm-mm. No. Mm. Well, at least, you know, at least two of us on this podcast were accidents and we know it. Look how mm-hmm. good we turned out. Yeah. Well, we got more certified accidents, you know? Yeah. We came with paperwork. I was an accident too, man. Were you? Yeah, I just didn't get, you know, I don't want to say given up, but kicked out. Kicked out. Yeah, no. My dad accidentally let that slip one day when I was bartending, like in my 20s. He was like, when me and your mom got married, you were there. And I was like, wait, what? And then he was like, you don't fucking know. And I was like, 
no, dad, what? So happy accident. I think we call that in the, in the accident community. I think what we call you more of a boo-boo. A boo-boo. Yeah. Yeah. A boo-boo result of bartenders in the 80s. Yes. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. I thought that was everybody's parents. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Something to do with bartending in the 80s. Yeah. Lots. Yeah. Something. It's called cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> something called cocaine. Oh, man. We should have been just generation cocaine. The like awkward in between Gen X and millennial group should have been just the cocaine generation. Oh yeah. That's what we are. The the yeah. snow children. The, the children of the it's, snow. It's so much cooler than millennial or whatever. Yeah. Millennial is such a terrible name. It just, it just implies that every member of the generation is still a young kid. For some reason people mm-hmm. can't get it in their head that millennials are like 40 now. Yeah. yeah. Like I remember when, I guess it was like spring break time when everybody was like, get off the beach, millennials. And I'm like, no, we're all no. struggling to keep jobs. Get fucked. It us. <laughs> yeah, we can't afford the beach. I haven't had a spring break in I won't even say how many years. We're all on summer I, vacation now, though, right? From home. What's that doing? And that's CJ going, pickle, 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 trying mm. to get her to come inside. Mm. Right. Sounds like he's having trouble because it just won't stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. Yeah, sometimes men have trouble with their pickles. Almost all the time. <laughs> Various troubles. Uh, um, yeah. Well, welcome to Weird Brunch. Our yeah. podcast. Oh, um, before we say our names, I was thinking about changing our names, changing our names. No, about how we should be saying, if you do listen and you like us, you should review us on wherever, because I think that helps, right? More five stars. Please write us on Apple Music and Stitcher. Stitcher. We're going to be specific today. Yeah. Yeah. We also just need the confidence boost. Yeah, that'd be good. (laughs) I'll take it. I'm Lisa Friedrich. Oh, are you? I'm Karina Maguire. And Whitney came in late. Sorry. (laughs) I'm Whitney Lamond. Oh, man. We really Uh, have today. Man, this one's disjointed already, and I love it. I can't wait to tell my story. I'm so excited. Well, we're going to make you. You have to go last now just because no, you said I that. Know. <laughs> I'm so That's excited. what you get. Yeah. Um, I would be uh, just thrilled to go first. Okay. Great. Okay. Um, sure, Lisa. I, well, I want to talk about um, a natatorium. Oh, I had one of those in my college. Don't know what it is. Great. So I'm actually going to talk about uh, Amarillo, Texas. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you haven't. Um, I I, there. You get there by morning. You get there by morning. Yep. Amarillo, Texas. It's better than Lubbock. That's true. A that glittering review. Mm-hmm. I completely you have a choice. Yeah. Go to the Rilla. Uh, Go to the Rilla. Yep. 
I lived there for 11 months when I was eight years old. Don't remember much. Anyway, in Amarillo, let's talk about that. It was founded on railroads, cattle, and merchandising. Uh, in the spring of 1887, it starts being... Wait, merchandising like I Heart Amarillo t-shirts? Like, yeah. Okay. yeah, just a bunch of tie-dye. Um, no, like specifically all three of those things combined. So like merchandising the cattle and using the railroads too. Oh. I was going to I was going to get there. Um but now I'll Sorry. just get that. No, it's fine. Um <laughs> So, uh Amarillo is actually along the route of the Fort Worth and Denver City Railroad, so they were meeting right there in Amarillo, so they were like, "You know what? This is going to be uh the region's main trading center." So they got cattle in them trains because the cattle drives. Who wants to fucking sit on a horse for fuck two weeks? No one. You get trouble with your pickle. Am I right? So then by the late 1890s, it's one of the world's busiest cattle shipping points. In 1918, they discover natural gas. In 1921, they discover oil. So... By 1922, hmm. we've got a town full of barons, you know, oil barons, gas barons, cattle barons. Shit's popping off. It's huh, a lot of barons. Yeah, it's just, it should have been called Baron Rillo. God damn it. Um, Baron Wasteland. <laughs> <laughs> So in July 1922, Amarillo Natatorium Company opens its indoor swimming pool on 6th Street. Uh, which I think backs up to Route 66. It's a long Route 66. I just don't know if it's the front or the back door. Uh, so natatorium is actually a word for indoor swimming pool, uh, which is good because Amarillo is arid as fuck. Yeah, that thing would evaporate right away. Right. And it's just, you're going to, like, you walk out of the pool, you get dust all over you, and it's just stuck on you. It's like, if I wanted to go to the beach, I would have gone to the beach. From the time it opened until now, the building is known as the Nat, which is kind of cool, in my opinion. I mean, that's a pretty cool jargon for the 20s, although the 20s did have a fuck ton of cool words. So it's built by a Santa Fe engineer, Arthur Ball, um, and salesman, Felix Walker. It opens on July 14th, 1922, and it is considered the largest and best equipped natatorium in the entire South. It's a heated pool when needed. 3,600 square feet. Uh, waterfall in the waiting pool. You got two. <gasps> Here's what blew my fucking mind. You got two UV ray machines purifying the water and discharging it back into the pool. Wow. Yeah. Heated when needed is like a tight slogan. I'm into it. Totally. It's new Tinder bio. Oh, shit. Imagine. Yeah. Imagine the matches. Uh, <laughs> in 1926, a man named J.D. Tucker purchases it, and within, an, within one year, he replaces the pool with a maple wood floor and built a stage where the diving tower was with a new name, the Nat Dance Parlor. So now we've gone from... Did everybody in Amarillo stop swimming? Why? I get JD Tucker had plans, I guess. Okay. He was a he was a pool baron. <laughs> a dance parlor baron. So yeah, he goes in, he redoes it. It's now the Nat Dance Parlor. 
and um, you had to, this troubles me, but it seems like something that was common. You had to pay 10 cents per dance. Mm. That was the charge. And then after every dance, the dance floor was cleared. And if you wanted to dance again, you had to pay 10 cents. When was this? 1926, seven, around then. Wow. I mean, that's a good business model because dancing was pretty much the only way to fuck. So that's like true. basically, yeah. Yeah, it's 10 cents a fuck. It's charging people for their horny levels, mm-hmm. basically. These people came to dance erotically. Can you imagine on East on Dirty Sixth right now? Or not right now, but like in this day and age, like instead of a cover charge or like shot specials, it was like 10 cents and then like you had to go around the side and then come back and pay another. People would do it. Yeah. They all those horny people on Dirty Six. They would have like rolls of dimes in their fist. But I mean, then again, coin shortage, maybe not. Can well, I charge I this 10 cents? Current apocalypse aside. Sure. Sure, sure. Oh, and access to the dance floor was by ticket only. So you had to pay 10 cents for that ticket. And then that's how, because I was also like, well, how do they know you paid? It still weirds me out. So the acoustics at the uh, Nat Dance Parlor were fuck awful. So they then built a shell over the stage and dropped some canvas. So now we've got some good music. 1928, we're going to rename it again the Nat Dance Palace, which grosses me out. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. So I get, I don't know. I think palace has just been associated with like, fuck palace or like pussy pal like just anyway i don't i maybe i watch fucked up shit bands who played the nightclub circus were hired for like limited and extended engagements just like stand-up comics are now or last year and then when the great depression starts coming they're like well how are we still going to get people in here because they're not going to be getting those tickets to dance so they start And this seems wildly egregious now. And it's also none of these things are equivalent to each other. But they start um, giving away new cars from local auto dealers, Navajo blankets, Chinese slippers, hosiery. I'd be so fucking mad if my neighbor got a car like two weeks ago and then I show up and I get fucking hosiery. Get I mean, it was expensive back then. Like a nice pair of stockings was mm-hmm. a, a a real treat. Well, Especially you better. If you're a mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna rub those thighs. I just hope they got a car's worth of hosiery. They also gave out records and cash inside of balloons. What's the point of that? Are they dimes? I, <laughs> just dimes <laughs> falling on everyone's heads. So then in the early 30s, obviously, we're, you know, they're, they're losing. They're not doing so hot. So uh, a businessman named Harry C. Badger buys it. <laughs> Hold on. Uh-huh. Uh, yes. <laughs> That's uh-huh. wonderful. The only thing that'd be better is if that was flipped and it was C. Harry Badger. That'd All be right. the only thing. Yeah, we can just call him that. He's dead. <laughs> so uh, Harry Badger, um, he gets the net. <laughs> Air conditioned, which is also huge because Amarillo is very hot and dry. And then in 1935, if you look up this building, you're like, well, this is gaudy as fuck. 
1935, fucking Harry Badger's the one that adds this castle-like exterior, like facade to it, and it looks it looks like something some someone I know would add to it. CJ, he loves Renaissance. It had the capacity to hold 400 people, and by 1938, it employed 25 people, which is, wait, I'm lying. It's 52. God, I guess the quarantine has made me dyslexic. It employed 52 people, which was a good amount of population in Amarillo in the 30s. So dances are held every night except for Monday, the Lord's Night, and Badger expanded um, the Nat, like the versatility of it by adding a cafe. So he renames the business, the Nat dine and dance palace. (laughs) This fucking place. Uh, The cafe is open from 2 PM to 1 AM. I'd take it. That sounds good. And on the menu, there was Chinese and American cuisine, KC steaks and fried chicken dinners. Wow. Just anything you want. All at the Nat Dine and Dance Palace. It does sound like all the kinds of cuisine that would make it to the panhandle of Texas. Yeah, and also all the kinds of cuisine I want at 1 a.m. True. So some of the bands that came through um, at that point were the Dorsey Brothers, Duke Ellington, uh, Harry James, Bob Wills, Guy Lombardo, etc. I keep feeling like I'm about to burp. Hold on, I'm just going to push it. Okay. All right. Leave that in. Badger sold the Nat on, uh, perhaps you've heard of it, December 7th, 1941. Oh, whoops. Yeah. Uh, to a dentist named William Allen Maddox. Get it, dentist. Uh, during the war years, the ballroom was popular with the airmen that were based at Amarillo's airfield. And then between 1948 and 1956, the Nat is like at its fucking prime, right? Like we're hosting dances with some of the biggest names. You got Lil Richard, you got Roy Orbison, you got Buddy Holly and the Crickets. I haven't heard of the Crickets. I'm sorry. Uh, 1956, it's uh uh-oh time. Wait, are you looking up the Crickets? Yeah, weren't they Buddy Holly's band? Yeah. Oh, that's when it says Bunny Holly and the Crickets. Yeah. I did know that. I didn't know that. If you're pretending that you knew Buddy Holly's band name, you don't have to. Well, I've heard it all in a string. (laughs) But looking at it looks funny. I mean, when the day the music died, did the Crickets die with it? No. Right? No, the Crickets lived on for another six to nine months as per their life cycle. You know, all yeah. of them. No, the crickets were in a bus. <laughs> Pussies. Budget thing. <laughs> uh, so 1956 comes around and it is uh-oh time. Uh, Maddox permanently loses his beer license following an incident involving a 15-count charge at a Little Richard concert, August 23rd, 1956. Eight counts of selling beer to minors, one count of indecent acts by two audience members, one count of assaulting a Potter County sheriff and five more charges that little Richard and members of his band engaged in offensive conduct, like public indecency charges. Oh, they're probably just doing regular old gay shit. I know. I know. Yeah. I mean, again, it is Amarillo. 
April 2nd, 1957, Maddox, uh, again, this guy used to be a dentist. Let's just keep that in mind. 1957, April 2nd, Maddox receives a fire inspection report that's a boo-boo. And by January 1958, uh, the city claims the gnat is a fire hazard. They refuse to issue a... ironic for a former swimming pool. I know. They refuse to issue a dance hall permit until Maddox repairs the building. Uh, he refuses to make repairs, but continues to hold dances. He's a outlaw dentist now. So <laughs> this leads to charges being filed for violating building and fire codes each time he holds a dance at the Nat. April 1958, the Nat no longer has a dance license and Maddox accuses the city of discrimination Against what? I don't know. The sex we were doing on the dance floor. The city states that the Nat is unsafe and will not issue a dance license. April 1960, a tax suit is filed against Maddox in the amount of $3,400 on uh, personal and business properties for unpaid taxes as far back as 1954. So it was six years of fuckery. And then by 1961, the Nats just like mostly unused. Uh, every now and then, like there's some sporadic dances and, and stuff and uh, different owners over the next 50 years, but it's pretty fucking bleak. In the Aww. 90s, yeah. In the 90s, the Natatorium was purchased and converted into... An antique small. No, I was hoping for a swimming pool. I know. This is where it gets to be a different kind of story. So visitors and management of the antique small, the Nat, begin to notice random but consistent temperature drop near the second floor landing, which was the area that was used for gambling back when it was the dance palace. Uh, A handful of other guests have claimed to have heard strange noises and whispers throughout the building. And then one time the owner uh, arrived to like open the store and all of the furniture was rearranged during the night. This bitch is haunted. (laughs) According to one psychic, a female apparition who spent a lot of hours in the gambling hall appears in a white dress with a red stain on the bodice. Uh, According to that legend, the lady was having just a really great time one evening. Another patron spills wine on her. And then she just had so much goddamn fun that she is just there for eternity. Oh, so she didn't get like stabbed and it's like a blood thing going on on her bodice. Just some wine juice. Okay. I just I just finished rereading The Shining, so any of that party old school style dead people I'm very sensitive to. <laughs> it's just wine, Whitney. It's okay. I promise. You can't prove it. <laughs> You're right. I'll have to go there. When bands still play at the Nat, which does still happen, um, it you can see a ghostly couple like gliding along the hardwood floors. And then in 1996, the Nat conducted an all-night ghost investigation with you know video cameras and tape recorders because it was 1996. 
Um, but the investigators had some difficulties with the cameras because they kept shutting themselves off. In the 90s when batteries sucked. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> and then outside of, uh, on an outside wall of the building, it was first painted over in 1942 and several times since then, but the words Monty McGee and his orchestra continue to bleed through the paint time <laughs> and time again. What did Monty McGee and his orchestra do? That's what I want to know. They probably spilled wine all over that woman. Assholes. They were just flirting. All right. I've got a personal account and I am not not going to share it because it's just, I, I just love the image of this woman. So it's day one of the antique mall opening. And this bitch is psyched. Fake name. Saving her name because of privacy. Janet. Uh, an Amarillo native. She is ecstatic that this antique mall is coming to her hometown. And she was like, I remember having to work that day, but I called in sick that morning. I was so excited. I was one of the first in line when they opened the doors that day. My God, Janet. It was so strange seeing one of the once famous dance hall turned into a shopping center. I began to explore the entire building from top to bottom uh, everything seemed fine, seemed normal until I stood at the bottom of the stairs. I started to get the eerie feeling like I wasn't alone. Looking up at the ancient staircase, it's hard to describe and hard to mention without sounding totally crazy, but it almost felt like something outside of my body was compelling me to walk up onto the second floor. I went up one stair at a time, and all the while it felt like somebody was whispering, yes, yes, in my brain. Now, I don't know. <laughs> I know. Look, she was real horned up for this antique small. Now, uh, I don't know what they use the second story, what they use the sec on the second story now, but on that first day, it was dark and unused. <laughs> Thanks, Janet. It was nearly impossible to see up there. Walking around the corner, I suddenly saw this pale woman in the middle of the room, shrieking in abundant pain. I was so shocked and scared, I began shrieking too, calling for anybody on the first floor to come get me. I heard heavy footsteps on the stairs, and then a manager appeared and rushed to turn on the lights. The room was flooded with light, and that's when I saw a white female mannequin standing in the center of furniture and goods. <laughs> when I explained what I had seen, the man looked from me to the mannequin and back at me like I was crazy. I know it may seem that way, but I really do believe Amarillo is haunted and the ghost likes to hide out at the natatorium. If you do go to the Nat Antiques Mall, on 6th Street, which is Route 66 in Amarillo. There is evidence of the former uh, natatorium. You can see it uh, inside and outside, especially areas of the um, interior and exterior siding, as well as there's signs that admonish bathers to keep off the roof. Of course. So there's your I mean one, one thing to do outside of Paladero Canyon next time you go to Amarillo. Oh, man. 
I used the hotel pool. I really missed out. Yeah, you could have seen some shrieking woman on the second floor of an old, (laughs) hasn't been a pool in a hundred years. It also sounds like it's on a sixth street that I would like to visit as opposed to R1 in Austin. I'm pretty sure when I was there, I did see a shrieking woman on the second floor of my hotel. Oh, most likely. That had to do with the ice machine. Oh, I thought you were just going to say ice because that's what they like to smoke (laughs) in the panhandle. Maybe. Who knows? I learned what ice was in college from a friend that was from the panhandle. It's it's pretty ironic given their weather that they're the holders of ice knowledge. But yeah. They get hail. <laughs> <laughs> a hail of a good time. Oh shit. Oh my god, what a good slogan for that city. Let's uh let's go to another beloved part of America since we were just in the panhandle of Texas and visit central Kentucky. Mm, love it. Mm. They don't know anything about drugs. Nom 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 nom. So central Kentucky, in addition to being um, the epicenter of our beloved opioid epidemic, is home to the longest cave in the world, which you probably do. That's not the weird part. It's called Mammoth Cave. Is this a new type of hole? This is a hole. It's It's a hole. It's definitely definitely a hole. It's a sideways hole, but it is a hole. It's the best kind of hole. Yeah, that's it's right. Your entry. It's real deep, guys. It goes 400 miles beneath the earth in twisting patterns. Um, so that's not down, but like 400 miles worth of cave. If you can picture that, that is a long ass cave. Is this like Appalachian Mountain area? Ish. It's at the foot of the apps. Okay. Uh, in. In somewhat cold country where water has carved out big things. So there's a lot of caves in Kentucky. They The Mammoth Cave has been known about since before the Civil War. And it was already, uh, you know, a, a tourist attraction when it was first discovered. In fact, uh, the earliest people to map out Mammoth Cave were slaves who were put under the ground uh, by the landowners to lead tours. So the first of the slave guides uh, to be a tour guide down there was named Stephen Bishop. And he named most of the features in Mammoth Cave that are still well known today. The River Styx, the Snowball Room, Little Bat Avenue. Uh, He also discovered the species of eyeless white fish that swims in the waters down there. Yeah. So uh, the caves got sold to a a Louisville doctor uh, before the Civil War, along with Stephen Bishop, uh, because he was property at that point. Uh, And that doctor said, please draw me a map from memory. So Stephen Bishop sat down and drew it. And as as you do when you're asked to draw a map of a cave, it kind of looks like a bowl of spaghetti dumped on the floor. But it happened to be a very accurate detail of about 10 miles of passages that Stephen Bishop had discovered. And it remained the most thorough map of Mammoth Cave for about 50 years. There's one little noodle that goes off of the Echo River that became very important 
about 100 years after Stephen Bishop died in 1870. Uh, Stephen Bishop, by the way, was buried near the cave entrance, uh, but you wouldn't know it because his grave is just marked by a cedar tree. Caving was like real big tourism in Kentucky. So every person in central Kentucky with a farm would either find a sinkhole or blow up a sinkhole and then claim they had an entrance to Mammoth Cave. Uh, But Stephen Bishop, his theory was that all of these caves that they were discovering actually were all connected together. And a lot of people believe that because of the way that the caves would breathe when you got to the end of a passage, you could still feel air going through. Um, But nobody could prove it. Why would... What tourist is going to Kentucky where coal mining is pretty much it and being like, hey, I want to go underground. I Like, just get a job. No, except that people were generally moving west from the East Coast at that point in American history, trying to populate the West. So I'm guessing this was like the proverbial stop-off tourist trap in Kentucky as you made your way to St. Louis and then beyond. That's my guess. I don't know. Okay. Okay. Anyway, so this theory became the cause of the Cave Research Foundation, which was like this ragtag group of caving people who uh, (laughs) spent 20 years in the 1950s and 60s mapping all these little caves uh, and finding the connections. They called it the Flint Ridge System and trying to prove that they all hooked into Mammoth Cave. And it went on for generations. Uh, Children grew up kind of playing in the woods around the cabin and then they become cavers and then they would become surveyors. And wait, these cave people had like had sex. Yes, they did. Sometimes in the, in the plain ass air. Uh, (laughs) So by by 1972, the cave research foundation had surveyed almost every Flint Ridge cave to its end point. Sometimes taking 10 hour belly crawls through these like whoop like tunnels to find the connection to Mammoth Cage Cave. And they believed that the final connection was very imminent. And they thought they knew where it was. There was like this specific point that ended in a little vertical crevice called the tight spot. <laughs> and nobody could quite squeeze through the tight spot until a computer programmer named Patricia Crowther came along. And she was big into caving and mapping, and she only weighed 115 pounds. So they were like, Patricia could probably get through the tight spot. And they went on a little expedition, and sure enough, she did manage to wiggle herself through. And on the other side, when she got into the mud bank on a tiny little chamber on the other side, with her helmet, she spotted the initials P.H., very mysterious initials PH are carved in the wall on the other side, which is creepy, but it's also proof that they've connected into a cave that's been discovered before. They keep it a secret until they get back, but they're pretty sure PH stands for old Pete Hansen, who was a famous explorer of Mammoth Cave before the Civil War. So if they found Pete Hansen's initials, then they had proven that Flint Ridge and Mammoth were connected in a single contiguous cave spanning 340 miles. If this is true, the discovery would become the Mount Everest of caveology or speleology because 
they're going to do the entire walk, 340 miles underground. So they're going to have to nap in there. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sleeping in a cave. Fuck that. 10 days later, they start their multi-day expedition with Patricia Crowther, who's got to lead the way because she's the only one who can get through the tight spot and break it open to allow the rest of the people through. Also, she was the one who discovered it, so she gets to play point. So they do it 10 days later. They walk the entire 340-mile span, making Patricia Crowther the first person uh, to walk the entirety of the central Kentucky cave system. Uh, After the tight spot, what they encountered was muddy water up to their chests until only a foot of air was available for them to suck in a subterranean No, no, thank you. They got to the other end of that river and they were caked with mud like chocolate frosting and were struggling to keep their headlamps dry. There were eyeless crawdaddies skidding around around their waist. No. And they had been doing this for days and days and days. They were exhausted. They'd been hiking farther underground than any cavers in the history of, you know, the world. And when they turned a corner from this creepy riverbed, they saw a hand railing. They were in the tourist trail in the heart of Mammoth Cave. Only moments before they'd been lost underground. And now they were just a few (gasps) steps away from a public restroom. Yay! Uh At least they're not... Dead were not. were there people on the tour that saw? Yeah. I don't have that detail. I hope so. This I don't horror? think so because they this was late at night. Like they had no sense of time. So like they accidentally finished this up in the middle of the night. So they get back out. They're looking up at the stars and uh, looking at the maps that they had made because you always make a map while you go when you're caving. Otherwise, you get fucking lost. Uh, And then they were matching it up to Stephen Bishop's map and they found which kind of tendril they had hooked into and the proof that they needed to show that they had done the deed. Right. So it's an incredible, huge feeling. I mean, this is like, imagine if you not only discovered the tallest mountain in the world, but actually hiked it and mapped it the whole way before anybody even knew it was there. Right. Yeah. Huge, huge feeling. So she goes home to Massachusetts where she and her husband will happen to run a map factory because her husband will also likes doing cave research. So they go back and his map factory in 1972 is made out of like all these computer pieces, like a mainframe that's in his house and stuff because he works for Bolt, Baranek and Newman, BBN, a Massachusetts company out of MIT that specialized in advanced research. And in 1969, just three years earlier, was contracted by the U.S. government to build ARPANET, the father of the internet. Whoa. So dude is one of the architects of the internet. Because, yeah, caves are like <laughs> the internet, man. One of the initial programmers for the, the baby internet. He also happened to have a Honeywell 316 uh, that they were using as an experimental computer to talk to other computers over telephone lines. So that was plugged in and he had a big drum machine that they could print maps out on. So anyway, uh, Patricia comes home, uh, they celebrate. And then when Will goes to bed, Patricia stays up all night typing in her coordinates because she was also a computer programmer. So she knew how to type code, typing in all the coordinates for the map. And in the morning, they went to the 1970s equivalent of Kinko's got it printed out on a drum and there it was the true map 
of Mammoth Cave. So Will, why didn't Will go on this trip with his wife? As he knew that she was going to probably discover this cave, right? He couldn't go because they were doing this in September, right when their daughters, aged eight and six, were going back to school. One of them had to stay home, buy the books, get them to school, take them to the dentist, register for classes. And Will knew Patricia found the tight spot. She got through it. She had to go. He'd stay home and take care of the girls this one time. Ha! Huh. Finally. So the thing is, Pat came home and she was like, can't sleep. She's different. She's a different person now. She's world famous. She's done something so thrilling and exhilarating. She's never experienced it in her life. And uh, she was suddenly in demand to help map out the rest of what was called the bed quilt uh, cave in Kentucky, which added the extra 40 miles that we know today that make it a full 400. Bed quilt? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it like is so like intricate. I don't know. They can do better than that. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Uh, So they kind of over the next three or four years fall apart. Um, As she's mapping out the bed quilt section and traveling back and forth to Kentucky all the time, Will's left at home to raise their daughters and consoling himself. Uh, with late nights of coding and long nights of Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, which, buddy. Is this yeah. the world's first neck beard? Is that what we're learning? Kind of. Yeah, it's the world's first sad boy. Mm-hmm. Um, so to pass the time, he starts coding a computer game. And he codes this computer game, uh, calling it Colossal Cave Adventure. And he makes a map sort of like you would find in Dungeons and Dragons that you would explore. But the map is based on uh, his wife's explorations of Mammoth Cave, which is huge. And he just kind of is killing time. There's no such thing as computer games, by the way. This is the first computer game. He just was killing time fucking programming uh, to cure his loneliness. So... He had no idea that anybody else would ever see it. He was just coding for himself and for his wife. But in 1976, the marriage fully fell apart. They got divorced. Patricia got custody of the kids. She took them with him. Will now only saw them on weekends and holidays. And all he had to do was play Dungeons and Dragons and code Colossal Cave Adventure. So the way this game works is it's just a black screen and it's all text. And it's like those old text adventures that you maybe, you know, remember playing or saw in movies. Uh, There's a sample block of text here. You are in a splendid chamber 30 feet high. The walls are frozen rivers of orange stone, an awkward canyon and a good passage exit from the east and west sides of the chamber. A cheerful little bird is sitting here singing. So you'd see that. And then you would have without any prompting or selections or choices to figure out what words to type to get it to do anything else. So people could type go west or they could type get bird and he would have programmed whatever comes up next. For example, if you typed get bird, you could do it, but only if you hadn't picked up a black rod earlier because the bird is afraid of the rod. Shit like that. Damn. Seems, yeah, it seems too hard. I mean, already, why make it super challenging? (laughs) It is super duper hard, but it was just for him. He was just basically making a Dungeons and Dragons campaign for himself based on the cave maps that he had essentially memorized by programming them all those years. 
So he finally finishes coding in 1977. He just saves it to his computer and doesn't think anything else of it. It's saved under a file that's just called Adventure. And what he, I guess, didn't realize or didn't think about was that he had that Honeywell. So his computer was hooked into ARPANET. And the internet at those times, there was no websites. He didn't type to like go to a website. Everybody was essentially just sharing a server. It was all these individual computers and one shared server. And Adventure was just sitting there on that shared server. So people in Stanford and Berkeley and MIT and all the places where people were working on ARPANET would just saw this little file called Adventure. This is like Napster. And they'd be like, huh. And they'd click on it Wonder and they'd open what? it. And apparently for the next four months, there'd be no productivity in their lab because everybody'd be fucking playing the game. <gasps> Computer programmers loved it. It took off. It became like essentially the first viral sensation of the internet. People trying to beat adventure. Patricia, who is now Patricia Wilcox at this point, uh, actually was still working in programming in Boston. And it, sh- it hit her lab and she saw it and she thought it was by Will and she played it. And she realized that's kind of like Mammoth, but it's really different. And the reason it's different is because some other programmer jumped in and added all these embellishments and details to the text to make it sound more like fantasy and wizards and stuff like that. But it wasn't. Mammoth cavers, there was a lot of cavers who were coders, a lot of coders who were cavers. Mammoth (laughs) Mammoth cavers who played adventure realized pretty quickly they had a leg up in the game. They knew exactly where to go they would just follow the route that they would in Mammoth Cave and they would always get out to the other end. Likewise, people who played Adventure and then went to the real Mammoth Cave realized on the tour, holy shit, I know this cave. I can just go and then like they could go where they wanted to go. It was an extremely accurate map of his ex-wife's accomplishments that he coded in his loneliness, missing her. So sad. Now, while he was coding it, his sister moved in to kind of keep him company. And of course, his daughters were there on the weekends. And they just kind of took for granted that when they were at dad's house, they were going to play computer games. So, you know, to help his family out, he kind of programmed this code word that allowed people to save their progress. You could etch XYZZY on any wall. And then when you started the game back up, you could type in XYZZY and end up back where you were, right? That's brilliant. Um, and that was Will's invention, Whoa. and he called it Zizzy, and it was basically the first family password. It was a secret password, Zizzy, between him and his daughters and everything like that. But it wasn't meant to get back to his ex-wife because he plotted a very specific special code for his ex-wife. She just had to type in P.H. and she would end up at the tight spot in the map of the game. Oh, Yes. He loved her. So it went on. The the Honeywell 316 went on to be developed into the first modern router. uh, And that's what we used for dial-up computers all the way up and through the 90s. Uh, The mainframe that he coded this on ended up becoming the personal computer. Uh, BBN was bought by IBM, who then, like, converted that technology into the personal computer. ARPANET, of course, became the Internet. And Adventure kept its notoriety around in programming circles and became all the earliest computer text-based computer games that, you know, we still know and love today. All of these things were born because of the first woman 
to mark a complete cave of mammoths. So like all these massive achievements coalesce basically on Patricia Crowther being a badass woman who only weighed 115 pounds. Well, now I hate her. I'm like <laughs> 115 pounds. Fuck you, Patricia. Is it? Have you watched the um the documentary series on Netflix? No, about I video haven't. Games? I think that's more about like arcade games. I don't think it goes back into the super nerdy 1970s programming games. But does it? Have you watched it? Oh, it does. It does. Yeah. So I don't know if they talk about this one in particular. They might though. Um, but yeah, they just cover like the full history of games. And so there, there's a whole section at least. And I don't think it's a whole episode, but there's a whole section about those green on green text on black screen games. And I was like, yeah, that looks fucking awesome. I mean, I'm sure and then you the can play guy, it somewhere. Yeah, you can. It's, there's a lot of, uh, you can kind of Google that. around and there are some emulators for it. It's at this point, not as fun as it was at the time, right? Because you're like, damn, this is just frustrating. Mm-hmm. By the way, Crowther did marry John Wilcox, who was the leader of the Cave Connection expedition, so no big surprise there. And if you're interested in the actual expeditions, she wrote a book called The Grand Kentucky Junction, all about all of these adventures, and it's apparently very harrowing. I just read um, like the free chapter you can get on Google Books, but it is a really amazing story um, and really terrifying because caving is badass and hard and scary. It's, it's so intriguing and also something that I just hmm, like, I'd rather burn to death than be like stuck (laughs) underground and, you know, incapable of getting myself out. That sounds like the worst. Oh, and a quick side note for anybody who's surprised that Patricia Crowther was a computer programmer. Fun fact, most computer programmers were women until the 1980s. It was considered women's work. Uh, and because it was... Because it was typing. Yeah, I mean, we saw hidden figures. It was that kind of thing. It was that transition from like clerical work into what was seen as scut work. Um, then once it was obviously creative and groundbreaking suddenly women weren't encouraged to do it anymore. Mine doesn't have to do with smart people at all. So get ready. I have one main thing. And then one thing that I just want to talk about briefly because it's hilarious to me. There's been a slew of um, ATM thefts in Northern Ireland. And what's going, there's been eight of them. And what's happening is, the this group of whoever is targeting ATMs that are across the street from construction sites. And, you know, like most construction sites, they either like, well, most construction, is it called an automobile? Does that make sense? Whatever. Machinery uh, has all like the same key. Like it doesn't have unique keys like a car does, but they've been targeting these construction sites across from ATMs, they obviously have a guy or a couple guys who know how to operate like a digger. And so they'll Mm -hmm. go to the construction site, take a digger, like claw ATMs out of the buildings. And some of them are like old ass, like castle looking buildings because it's fucking Ireland. And they're just clawing into there, pulling out an ATM, dropping it like inside either like somebody has a trailer or they've 
cut holes in the top of like stolen vans and just plop the fucking ATMs in there and they just drive off. And if the cops show up, they can block the entire road with the fucking digger and they can't get around. And the cops over in Northern Ireland, Ireland are completely baffled by all of it. And they have no leads on who it could possibly be. And it's making me really happy knowing that people are just (laughs) straight up using construction equipment to steal ATMs. It's fucking funny. It is. It is. When I first read it, I was like, what? I I think I saw like a video on Reddit where it just goes and just smashes into a thing, steals it and drops it into a car. It's wild shit. But, um, so now that's out of the way. Let's talk about this fucking murder. Yay. Doesn't everybody love that? No. Well, I knew it would be murder. Tragic, but also pretty wild. So the reason this caught my eye is one, because it's very recent. Um, but also it said kids in TikTok video find dead bodies. And I was like, what? So let's go all the way to Washington State, Seattle. Uh, this happened in June, so not too long ago. Yeah. Um, so oh, I'm so excited for this. A 62-year-old man has been charged with the killing of a young Washington couple. A guy named Michael Dudley is the landlord of this house in Seattle and turns out his two tenants he's kind of irritated with, like he says they're doing drugs and which, I mean, possibly Seattle, they do a lot of drugs up there, you know? Uh, Yeah, just legalize it. So he's, I don't know, been kind of, disgruntled by their presence and he says that they haven't really paid rent and he's starting to get more and more pissed and uh i guess they weren't paying him so the people who are living there is 36 year old jessica lewis and her boyfriend of eight years named austin wenner who is 27 so that means he was 19 when they started dating and she was like 28 which I could never do, but I mean, whatever, go for it. Young, dumb, Hey, there you go. Family members are like, what's up? Where, where are y'all at? Why haven't we heard from you in a while? Um, And they're like, you know what? I kind of remember them telling us that a bunch of guys had showed up at their house on June 9th and had guns and were like being really aggressive to them and like, get the fuck out of here. Um, and they kind of beat him up, but nothing ever happened after that. But that was something that was on their family members radar. And they're like, this is weird. And it's weird that we haven't heard from them. Maybe we should like let the police know. And the police are like, cool. Thanks for letting us know. Cut to, a few days later, and there are these kids who are doing this thing that I'm going to talk about that I am so excited for because I want us to go and do this shit. Anyways, so 
these kids are on TikTok, but there's this other app that like TikTok users have been utilizing to record or to like give them motivation for whatever they're filming for TikTok. It's called Randonautica, which okay. I had never heard of. But what it is, and I'm sorry if I start sneezing because I feel like it's going to come. Oh, God. Okay. I got this. <laughs> I haven't actually done it. So Randonautica, on their website, it describes itself as the world's first quantumly generated choose-your-own-adventure reality game. And I was like, oh, okay. So, dude, I downloaded it too. <laughs> Uh, I was like, okay, so is it kind of like geocaching, but it's more of like, oh, this is going to lead me to a graveyard or, you know, something like that. Explore the world you never knew existed. So people have been, what you do is you enter, I don't know, where you are and say like, I want to feel inspired or something. And Randonautica generates coordinates that are somewhat close by. And while you're on your journey to these coordinates, you're supposed to just the world, you know, you're supposed to like experience different things. And a lot of people are like, yeah, well, it's because you're already out there thinking like, oh, I'm looking for something inspiring. And on your way to this spot, you see some little kid wrote like, be happy on the ground and chalk or something. But a lot of people have been like, I want to be creeped out or scared. And there have been instances where people have been led to like abandoned houses and like Blair Witch type areas in the woods. And it's pretty wild shit. And again, it's like, yeah, well, if you're looking for it, but still like, this is so right up my alley. I'm so excited it exists because I like want to do it right now. But these TikTok kids, back to the story, are playing Randonautica and they get led to this um, like rocky beach in Seattle. And they're like, oh, I wonder if this is the thing. Like it's supposed to be creepy. And there are these, there's this like, suitcase like a packed black suitcase that looks like it's washed up and they go over to it and you can watch the video of this girl and she has like a stick and they're like god it like smells from over here already this is weird so they're kind of weirded out the girl goes up she like opens unzips this suitcase and when they open it the smell is like fucking boom, overwhelming. And they're like, holy shit. And this, whatever is inside the suitcase is wrapped up in a bunch of like black garbage bags. So they can't see it. And the kids are like, fuck, we're not going to open this. The smell is so terrible. Like we can't open this. And all there's, I think there was three of them and they start getting weirded out and they're like, we should just call the cops fucking stop, shut the shit down right now. So they call the cops and this is June 19th and 
the video of the kids is like them, the girl opening it, them calling the cops. And then the next one is them in their car leaving. And on the road they're leaving, it's being barricaded off. Like there's a fuck ton of cops there and everything because turns out inside this suitcase is a chopped up body. And what do the cops find? Like way close by another suitcase full of chopped up body. No. I know. I'm sorry, oh, but it full is of, that full was, of chopped up body. The remains are later identified as Jessica Lewis, 36 year old, who also is a mother of four. I don't think her kids lived with her, though. It sounds like they probably were having some type of dependency issues. And her 27-year-old boyfriend, Austin, are the two bodies that are inside these things. According to the police, Winner, Austin Winner, died of a single gunshot wound. And Jessica Lewis was shot multiple times. Their bodies were chopped up, put in the suitcases, dumped into the water, and then they washed up. At that time, when the bodies were found, their friends and family put up like a $10,000 reward to try and figure out who the fuck killed their loved ones. Dudley, the landlord, hasn't been questioned yet, but we're kind of jumping back to June 9th, the day that these people went missing. That same day, this girl comes over to Dudley's house because he's put up an ad being like, hey, come in, come in, move in. I have an extra room in my fucking house. This girl shows up and she's like, boop, 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 right after she leaves. What's up, cops? Guess what? This weird shit that just happened. Dudley is like, cool, you're great. Let me help you move your shit in. They're moving her shit in. She notices immediately that his glasses are broken. His face is all scratched up. She's like, that's kind of creepy. Whatever. She takes a shower in her new bedroom, notices heaps of clothing in the middle of the floor, and what the fuck is sticking out from under it? A human hand. And what she's the hell? like, what the fuck? And she's like, yo, Dudley landlord, what is this? And he goes, let me put it this way. His gun misfired and mine didn't. Oh my God. And she's like, God damn. Cool. I'm fucking out. Detectives get a search warrant. They come over. They find bullet holes in the walls. They find spent gun casings or bullet casings and blood everywhere. Um, Neighbors said the night uh, or the day of June 9th, they had heard a bunch of gunshots and yelling and they called the cops and the cops came over knocked on the door. No one answered. And they were like, cool. Well, bye. And Dudley, when he was questioned about his tenants murder said he couldn't explain the bullets or the bullet holes or like the blood or any of that stuff. Um, so he was arrested last Wednesday, charged this Monday and is going to get arraigned on September 8th and yeah that's my short-ish little stories that's that's crazy i didn't know that they figured that one out like just fucking happened 
it's a bummer about the two people that were murdered, but it's like just the TikTok, like you can see the videos like right here in front of me. And it's, it's mm-hmm. wild because, you know, it's like a normal TikTok video and then it has like a caption on it and they're like, look at this weird suitcase. And like, Oh my God. It's, it's crazy. And also Randonautica sounds so interesting. I, I really want to play it. I've, it says not play it tonight, though. <gasps> I've never like, I've always gotten locations that are like in someone's backyard Oh, and I'm like, how well, long have you known yeah. about this? That's yeah, it's like the burbs. Everybody's got their own counterfeit operation slash satanic cult in their basement. It could be. Yeah. yeah. I said, when did when did you hear about this, and how long have you had that app? Oh, this is that's that is a baited question. And why didn't you fucking tell me about it? <laughs> solid points. Solid points. Um, I've had it. I mean since towards the end of june i'm just curious because like it's funny because the buzzfeed article i that i read about randonautica i assume has was written before this tiktok finding bodies kind of deal because it doesn't reference it at all but um it's like it's a fun way to spice up your daily stroll because we're all in quarantine. I was like, you know what? It fucking is. And I'd much rather do that than the usual like loop I take. Yeah. So go, go explore someone's backyard. Right. Hey, listener, would you play Randonautica with us? Come play with us forever <laughs> and ever. Okay. Wow. Sorry, more shining shit. I'm sorry. Yeah. That was it. That was our last one. <laughs> But yeah, rate us, follow us, do all the things. That'd be great. That'd be so cool. We would think you're the best. Mm-hmm. Lisa will give you five dollars mm-hmm. of my of my barren money. <laughs> there you go. That's what they should call the next round of stimulus chests. Just have Baron Trump sign it and call it Baron money. Oh, that poor kid. Uh, yeah, he's gonna be yeah. fucked. Up. I feel so bad. He's gonna live in Amarillo. He looks like Amarillo. <laughs> Have you ever seen a person that just looks like Amarillo? Gross. Mm. All right. Well, that was it. 